All right, let's uh, got, get back into this real quick. We're going to jump right into um, Revelation 4, the actual text this morning. We're going to talk a little bit, kind of mop up a little bit from last week. Um, the question was made that we didn't quite understand something, and I thought about how I said it, and it's probably why you don't understand it as to why I said it, but I, I figured a different way of saying it. We talked about the two phrases uh, in the beginning of um, chapter 4 where it, or where it says, um, or the chapter 1 where it says, I will show you the things that are and the things that will be, and then in the beginning of chapter 4, the voice says, come up here and I will show you the things that are yet to, to come. And so a lot of Bible commentators uh, make that as part two, make chapter four as the beginning of part two because of that statement. And what they do is they divide the book. I got a ring up here. Um, they divide the, the book by chapters one through three as being the church age. Is that me? Probably. So this is like the... Um, this is like first century church. And then here is, oh, and this would be things that are. And then from here to depending on your hermeneutic, whether this be the rapture, whether this be the second coming, whatever. We'll call this just the end of the church age. This constitutes the rest of Revelation 4 through probably 20. Um, 20, and 20 and 21 and 22 are specifically about the beginning of the new, new creation. So, And then this is the things that are, things that will be. Okay, we'll just call it that. That's not the exact usage of the exactly the way the phrase is, okay? So what I said is, is that in both cases, both, although this has to do with, in John's day as being, this phrase here has to do with what John was saying has to do with this, and the things that will be has to do with this, based on John, that's a true statement. However, there is a recapitulation concept about these two phrases that we need to understand because we understand the, the whole book as a recurring theme. So, if you look at it like this, here's the ascension of Christ, here's whatever your hermeneutic is on the, the, the end of it, and then you draw that spiral that we said as far a recapitulation from here and you do this through the timeline, okay, like that. At any given point in this timeline, whether it be John, whether it be you, whether it be your children, let's say you're here, 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 or here. doesn't matter where you're at on that timeline. These two phrases hold true because of recapitulation. When you read it, there will be things that are. And things that will be. When you read it here, there will be things that are and things that will be. Okay, does that make sense? So this, these two phrases are recapitulated throughout the entire book of Revelation. And what I said was, for John, when he said the things that are, he meant this first century church that he was addressing. Now we know that because the the number seven, that first century church carries on throughout the church age. But because those two phrases are stated, let me say it again, because those two phrases are stated as recapitulate or, or as recurring phrases, it depends on where you are in this recurring timeline. When you read Revelation, there will be things that are and there will be things that are yet to come. Does that make sense? Okay, so I wanted to clear that up. So, I'll erase this. Somewhere my wife is printing notes for today. <laughs> but we'll refer to a couple of other things. The couple of other things that I wanted to go over real quick is I wanted to refresh our mind with regards to hermeneutic. Um, and there's three things. Where, where am I on my notes here? 
Um, the first thing that we need to understand now that we're launching into this is that when John said, uh, after these things, that doesn't mean that there's a chronology of the events as they're played out on the world stage. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when he says, after these things, he's saying, I first saw this vision, and now I'm seeing this vision. So that phrase only has to do with the order which in which he received the visions. And that does not necess necessitate a, a, a chronology of the way they will play out in history. That's been a mistake of interpreters for a long, long time. Because they've taken that statement to mean, after these things, to mean that first this vision happens, and then this vision happens, and then this vision happens. That's a true statement, but it's true to John, not to us. Okay, you got that? So... The book of Revelation has been read wrong as far as I'm concerned for years and years. I had a conversation with a guy yesterday who is a, 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 pre, a, a premillennial dispensationalist. And he reads the book literally and chronologically. And so he's still naming events by, well, this is this, and this is the Antichrist, and this is the mark of the beast, and this is this, and this is this. And I said, well, what do you do with this idea about the people... In the first century that couldn't buy or sell because you're waiting for a mark of the beast before that can't buy and sell happens what about the people throughout the history that lost their jobs and couldn't buy and sell in the in in, in their culture and so he had not thought of that before so we are non-chronological the visions of revelation cannot be read as history written beforehand it is not a book that depicts the scenes of history that can be pursued as one would pursue a history book. The book as a whole must be read as a picture of all that must still come to pass, a picture that is com composed in symbolic language. Here's another thing that we have to keep in mind. From this point on, you are seeing nothing but symbols. And to interpret them literally is a dangerous thing. So let's just take... Revelation chapter 4, do you think Jesus sits on a piece of furniture in heaven? Some do. So, in a literalist concept, what you would think is that Jesus sits in a spatial or spatial bubble where there is actual some kind of literal, tangible thing where he, this being, and I'm not even going to try to draw him, sits on a throne, right? In front of the throne is like this big circular glass thing, right? Glass. Over his head is like this big jade, jade or, uh, I'm sorry, it's not jade, it's emerald rainbow, okay, right, <laughs> around this throne here are like these four really, really funky beings that have different faces that are completely covered with eyes, right, and that around here Twenty-three, twenty-four, are twenty-four thrones, literally, with old guys sitting on them, right? And in front of the throne here are seven fires. That's where we're going to spend eternity, folks, in that space. And we read, when we read particular passages of Scripture, we put in our mind's eye the picture that God gave John to depict a truth. And we try to make it real. And this is where we fall short when we read Revelation. Because what John gets to see is ineffable. It's, non, it's indescribable. It cannot be translated into human language. And so in order for Jesus to convey what is what the reality is 
Through the Spirit, John receives pictorial language. God is not some being strapped to a throne with, oh yeah, lightning, fire, and thunder, and all that. This is all pictorial language. And it all means something very, very, very specific to the truth of him who sits on the throne. You certainly can. Um, in, in Revelation, it says that John clearly saw these things. Mm -hmm. and he, w he wasn't just communicated to him verbally. It was he saw it. Right. And then the other thing I wanted to say was, I, I'm not sure if, um, I'm not clear on whether when Jesus ascended, he, did he throw off his manhood? No. So he's still in a body. Yep. Is that correct? Yep. So does he not get to sit on a chair in, in heaven? The question that I have is, is if you actually take the language of Scripture, what you have is you have the Father with Jesus as a man sitting on top of him. In some pictures, on other pictures, you have Jesus sitting on actually on his right hand. So if you if you take what's said literally in Scripture, what you have is God or probably the Father sitting on a throne with all this stuff going on around him, and his son actually sitting on his right hand. Or at his right hand, depending on the translation. So now what you have is two thrones. And two thrones actually contradict Scripture because it says, I will sit on my father's throne. So all of these things that we want to take literally in order to give ourselves a picture, the second part of that is true, because it gives us a visualization of something that we cannot describe and that there's no way for us. We don't have in the human language words that describe what John saw. That's why in, when in Ezekiel and Isaiah and John say, and I saw as it were something that looked like glass. He didn't see glass on the ground. He says, as it were, I saw something that looked as though it were glass, or as glass that looked as it were like crystal. So note that if you go back, and it's very important when you read First uh, John 4, that there's a lot, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, I'll tell you, Daniel 7, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10 are parallel passages of Scripture. So it's always fun to read Revelation 4 and then go back and read Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7. And understand that the images are the same. A lot of commentators go, well, you know, John pulled from the imagery of Daniel and Isaiah. No, he didn't pull from it. He actually got to see the same thing they did. But here's an interesting thought, and we'll get to it in a minute. And the reason why I say that this is not literal and should never be taken literal is because Ezekiel is taken into the throne room of God, right? And what does he see? He sees four creatures... Help me out. With what? Four faces. Each one has four faces. And each one has six wings. Isaiah's pictorial, the, the image he receives, is different. The angels have four wings and they cover themselves in various ways and fly about the throne. Or over the throne. Ezekiel's dream the four images stand on the corners of the throne and actually undergird the throne one and ten uh, I, i'm sorry isaiah uh I, isaiah six in the year the king uzziah died i saw the lord high and lifted up okay um john's vision is four distinct beings with six wings and each has its own face and so a lot of commentators say, because they're literalists, they go, well, there's actually myriads of beings in heaven, and they actually got to see different things. The ones that I like the best say this, that these are symbolic representations of a truth that actually is in heaven, and each one of them represents something unique about that truth. Same truth, different, different perspectives on seeing the same truth. 
And where do else do we see that exact thing happening? The Gospels. Four, well, three synoptics in John. Three synoptic Gospels. In Luke and John, Matthew, they see the same thing, and there are nuances and variations to what they see. Why? Is that because the Bible contradicts itself? So you have three visions of the same thing, and you see three different accounts. Does that mean they're not seeing the same thing? No. They're just seeing a different aspect of it. They're allowed to see something that depicts something else. Okay? So we're going to talk a lot about the, the depictings that go on in chapter, in chapter 4, but this is a very, very key um, Statement. Now, I'm going to give you my personal understanding of the way that chapter 4 and 5 work together because, believe it or not, I have actually spent a great deal of time thinking about it. Um, let me go to my other set of notes here real quick. Did Grace, did you get the notes? Right, everybody got them? Okay. In my personal con contention, uh, a lot of people say that chapters... Um, that there's some different things about chapters 4 and 5. Um, I'll just tell you this. I think it's a, it's a progressive vision of the same thing. I think John is seeing, it's broken up into two chapters, which if you ever, what's that Bible that you have that doesn't have the chapters and verses in it? You have one of them. What's it, what's it called? No. So, Biblioteca or something like that. It's a series of six or seven volumes, and it's the Bible without all the chapters and verses. Buy that and read Revelation. Well, I'm going to tell you to buy it. It's expensive. <laughs> Borrow it and read. Yeah, neither do I. So it was a birthday present for me. <laughs> read Revelation if you ever get a chance without chapters and verses. It is amazing. Because once you do that, it takes out all of the mental breaks that you make when you come to chapters. So once you're able to read it contiguously, it's, it will transform the way you read it. And this is especially one of the places that it does this, chapters 4 and 5. Now in my estimation, chapter 4 is intended to depict the creator God. In his triune capacity. Chapter 5 is intended to depict the Redeemer Christ. Who does not make his appearance in chapter 4. Except for the voice. But in chapter 5, John all of a sudden sees a lamb as if it had been slain standing not out by the elders, but in the midst of the throne. So what we have is now we have, and there is a, uh, now we have the separation of the incarnate second person of the Trinity. And there's an interesting statement there that um, um, when Jesus takes the scroll, he does so because he, he has been slain, and that is a specific depiction of what event? The crucifixion. So when Jesus takes the scroll, he does so, and the scroll is the plan of redemption that God gives him. And that goes back to chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him. So you actually have a picture of Revelation 1, 1 being played out in John 5, uh, in Revelation 5. So that's why I say to you, this is recapitulation because what is said in verse chapter uh, verses chapters one verse one is now depicted in five where they said and there was a scroll in the right hand of him who sits on the throne and the angel said who is worthy to open the scroll and, and I wept because nobody was found in all of heaven and earth who was able to open the scroll and the angel said to me don't weep look the of the lamb that was slain he is worthy to open the scroll Jesus has, has, by his work of redemption, now can open the scroll. What is the scroll? The scroll is the plan of God, the, his, the, the eternal plan of God for the history of redemption, uh, for, uh, for the eternal plan of God, God 
for the redemption of, of mankind and of creation. Okay, so you see two different things going on in these two visions. One is the creator God in his glory as he is in all eternity. Triune in one. He who sits on the throne, no distinction made between the Father and the Son. And before the throne are seven, seven um, flames, which are the seven spirits of God, which go before the throne, which is a very interesting statement. Because that's theologically correct, because we, we teach that the Spirit proceeds eternally from both the Father and the Son. So this is, this is an, an amazing picture of the truths. Now, do you think that the Holy Spirit is seven little burning things? No. Why? Because later on, when Jesus makes his appearance on the scene in chapter 5, he has the seven eyes that are the Spirit. So take your pick. Is, is the Holy Spirit seven eyes or is it seven flames? It's neither. He's neither. But he's depicted as such to give us an understanding of something about who he is and what he does in the plan of redemption. That's why I say to you that the throne, God does not sit on a throne. That the throne is a depiction of the sovereign, authoritative, eternal rule of God. The throne is not something that God sits on. The throne is something that depicts who he is. Okay? And so, because the throne is the key figure for the rest of Revelation, which depicts God's sovereignty and his authority and his oversight of all things that go on throughout the world, which is depicted by that throne, that throne is the centerpiece of the rest of the book. So, John, what is the very first thing that John says, and I saw? What's the very first thing he says he saw? Work with me here. After that. And I saw a throne. That's the first thing he saw. Okay? So, we have to start understanding that these, we're, we're going to talk about the ineffable, undescribable, completely other than us God, who is in complete control. And you have to know why this is positioned right here in chapters 4 and 5. After the church. So, you have the churches, and I'm going to just give you real quick. You have churches right here, one through three, and what, 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 man, that was terrible. What is said about this? Oh, I can't do it upside down. What is said about this? What, what, what do we understand that's going on in the first, first three chapters? Why do we, why are we good? First thing, first thing we understand is that Jesus is among his church. Jesus is overseeing his church. Jesus is the shepherd of his church. He is all powerful. He comes in judgment and in love and in, in compassion and in correction to his church. And his church is in a state of all kinds of different places, right? But all of them are confronted by what? A conflict. Remember what we said about the gospel. The gospel is violent in its nature. It confronts the darkness. It's not a pacifist's message. It is about peace and love, but it is not pacifist. It invades the darkness and it crushes the darkness. It's the, that's the intent. And it takes men violently away from the hands of the enemy and sets them free. It's a violent act depicted literally on the cross. Okay, so one through three ta talks about churches and Jesus who is the re ascended Lord who walks among the lampstands. But there is a conflict. So we're seeing conflict, right? And we're seeing it in a literal capacity here through the first century churches. This is what's really going on in the churches. Now, because there's seven, this is what's going to continue to happen. So you're going to be always in conflict. What happens? Jesus said, ends this section with, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Which means that this is per parabolic. Which means that this is a parable. So I tell you what's going to happen, and now I'm going to show you what's, what this conflict looks like. Right? But before I do, let me set your mind at ease. Before I do, let me establish who I am. 
Before I do, let me, know, let me tell you who's in control. Before I do, let me explain to you why these things are happening because I've ordained it. Before I do, let me show you just a little bit of who I am. In every conflict, the greatest weapon that you have to endure the conflict is a new and fresh revelation of who God is. And this is revelation. Okay? So chapter 4 and 5, God gives to his church, every church that reads it from this point on, a fresh revelation of who he is and how and, and his control and his sovereignty and his uh, immutable oversight of everything that's going on so that you do not get nearsighted and lose the perspective of where all this is coming from because of what you have to face every day. Does that make sense? Are we good with that? Any questions so far? That's my general overview. All right, let's jump into the text. Who's got a Bible? Okay, who can read really well and rather quickly? I can, but I'm always accused of reading it too fast. Oh, the chapter 4. Because I think, I think what's said in chapter 4 is, is good for us to hear in its entirety before we start out. Go ahead. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which, were the, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, the seven, second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their, thr their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. So, let me just say to you, you are privileged as a people, to be able to read that. Because God has granted you, in pictorial language, the ability to see who he is. Not him personally, but to see his, the effulgence of his glory in pictorial language. Never take that passage of Scripture and the one after it for granted. Never. Because... There is a doxology, two, two statements of doxology that are in this where, where the hosts of heaven break out into spontaneous praise over and over again. And the whole book of Revelation is about whom will you praise? Who is worthy to receive glory? Because in Revelation chapter 13, we see the enemy's attempt is he made the image come to life and he compelled the nations to worship it. Lucifer has always desired the worship that is due only to God. Wor Lucifer has always coveted the worship and the glory that is God's alone. And here you have a picture of God receiving the wor worship and glory that's due his name. 
And then in chapter 13, you see the enemy trying to usurp that and claim it for his own. What was Nebuchadnezzar? This is a very interesting statement. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel did what? Um, Okay, let me be more specific. Nebuchadnezzar did what that caused him to go mad? Ancient world, yeah. And he said, look what I've done. For what? For my glory. He did exactly what Lucifer did. I will, I will, I will ascend to the, uh, to the Most High. I will receive. Nebuchadnezzar did the exact thing. Look at, look at what I have done for my glory. He took and usurped what is God's alone. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? This is very interesting. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? What did he do? What was the description? Yes, he did go mad. He became like a... That's the key word. He became like a beast. Who in Revelation demands the worship of those that he claims? It's the beast. Nebuchadnezzar became the very same thing that we see in chapter 13. That's pretty cool. <laughs> wasn't for him. But that's a, that's a pretty cool parallel when you think about it, all right? God will not share his glory with any man. And that which tries to usurp his glory is the beast. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar actually became when he did that. Yeah. But unlike at the Tower of Babel and unlike Lucifer... Nebuchadnezzar repented. That's right. He did. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. And you know who else repented, which is also amazing? Manasseh. Of whom it is said that no man was as evil a king as any, any king was Manasseh. Cried out to God in a Babylonian prison, and the Lord heard him. That, guys, should just make you weak in the knees. All right? Two points in chapter 4 now that we've read it. Chapter 4 and 5 do not give us a picture of heaven. You need to understand this. It's not a picture of heaven. Chapter 4 and 5 give us a picture of the universe under the rule of God. We have to get away from the concept that heaven is a spatial place contained that has some kind of chronology about it and that things happen there and that it's, you know, it's off up in heaven because that's what the whole dispensational concept is. When you're raptured, you go to this spot that's heaven where there's a throne. And it's a long way away from here. What will blow your, what, what will undo all of this is the, the martyrdom of Stephen. As he was being stoned, heaven opened and he saw. There's no space. You don't go anywhere. When you die, you just step into. Heaven is all around us. And despite what a lot of people will say, heaven is where God is. Okay? So heaven is all around us. So when we worship this morning, I, I encourage you, when you worship this morning, you are joining with the host of heaven that is all around you. All right? And we lose sight of that when we worship. We think we're a little band of guys in the middle of nowhere, unrecognized, just singing a few songs. <laughs> You're joining what you see in chapter 4 of Revelation. You are participating in this event. Never come into church and think, I'm just going to sing a few songs and listen to the word and go home. You're actually participating in something that is eternal, huge, and all-encompassing. Way bigger than you. Okay? That makes sense? So... Chapters 4 and 5 do not give us a picture of heaven, but, but instead the entire universe from the perspective of heaven. 
Consider the following, which we'll, we'll elaborate on as we go. The four living creatures represent the created order. That's why each one has a face of a recognizable created being. Uh, this is two points, point one. The 24 elders represent the, full, uh, the full fullness of God's people spanning both testaments, old and new. And the sea of glass... And this will blow your mind. The sea of glass represents the calmed waters of chaos, which is God's victory over evil. And we'll talk about that later. So in the throne room, you see God's sovereign rule over all of creation, depicted by the four creatures, over the church and mankind, depicted by the 24 elders, and over even evil itself as depicted by the sea of glass, okay? And we'll get into all of that as we go along. But this is a perspective. John is seeing God's sovereign rule over everything. It's not contained to this little bubble that's somewhere off in the nether region where only a few people and throughout Scripture get to go see. This is a truth that impacts each one of us. God is sovereign over everything. And that's the picture, okay? Questions on that? The primary port, point then of these two chapters is, is best expressed in Psalm 99, 1 through 3. Oh, and I lost it. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherub. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name, he is holy. That's what you're seeing in, Je in Revelation 4. The prime, um, after, okay, so let's talk about verse 1. Ready? You guys got your notes? Said so the word is, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. I am not going to get into what the door represents. There is such a plethora of various connotations some liken it to the door that was opened for the Philadelphians. Some say it was the door that, you know, Peter's given a key to. It's, it's crazy, some of the things that are said. The best explanation that I can say is that the door that was opened up into heaven was that, that uh, John was given a particular perspective of the throne room of God. And that throne room, th that perspective is the what we just said. That John was shown that God is sovereign over all things. So this door was open for John, and he could move from the natural into the spiritual and see from God's perspective, okay? Um, after this I looked. The phrase does not refer to the events of chapter 4 to the end of the book as chronologically coming after the events recorded in chapter 1 through 3, but indicated uh, only that a new vision is coming after the previous one. After this I looked. After this. After this what? After the vision of Jesus among the lampstands. Okay? So this is chron chronological to John, not to us. In other words, the phrase indicates a sequential order in which John saw the visions, but not necessarily the historical order of the, de the events they depict. And this, is, uh, and this is why the same phrase should be, uh, this is the way the same phrase should be understood when it is used sequentially in 7.1, 9.15, 18.1, and 19.1. They all indicate a new vision. After this I saw, after this I saw, after what did you see? After the previous vision that I just told you about. That's what that means. It's chronologically, chronological to John, but not chronological and historical timeline. What must take place after this? We've talked about this. The phrase has direct connection to Daniel 2, 28 and following, in which Daniel prophesies the latter-day coming of the kingdom of God. The use here reveals that John is now seeing the fulfillment of what Daniel saw in Christ. So John is now seeing the fulfillment in Christ Jesus of what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 2. Okay? 
These words then do not refer to the distant future or to a yet-to-come time of great tribulation, but instead to events unfolding at the very time in which John was writing. And remember what I, the timeline that I drew at the very beginning, that this has pertinence to everybody because if you draw the timeline, like again we did, here's your recapitulation, here's your timeline, at any given point, wherever you fall, on the timeline or the recapitulate, however you want to do it, things that are and things that are, there are things that are and things that are still to come. There are things that are and things still to come. Okay? The entire phrase, and I will show you what must take place after this, is a reference to all the things included from chapter 4 to the end of the book and intends to indicate that the vision's about to unfold concern events throughout the church age, past, present, and future. To us. Does that make sense? It is really only when this understanding, uh, only with this understanding that the visions of Revelation remain consistent with the clear teaching of the New Testament that the last days or the latter days were initiated by the resurrection of Christ. In many, many ways, we have to come up with language in order to specify something that's future because we take the last days traditionally in America to mean either a seven-year tribulation after a rapture or just that little, bitty that little bitty span right before the rapture or the second coming. So the, great, the, the, the days of tribulation are always yet to come, always yet to come, Right? Well, I'm going to have a hard time trying to explain to a person that had to watch his children eaten by lions why the tribulation wasn't when he was in the middle of it. Because he saw a tribulation that you and I haven't experienced yet. And to him, it was great. Okay? So the last days were initiated when Christ ascended. So for the entire church age, equal last days. And it is only when you understand the book of Revelation and the recapitulation concept that this phrase actually can apply to the whole of that. Otherwise, it's relegated to this, some abstract time period down here. Okay? Okay. And the voice I had heard, uh, the voice I heard, uh, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet. This is the same voice in John, John heard in 110. It is, in fact, the voice of Christ. It's the only mention of Christ, and it's an indirect mention of Christ. It's the only mention of Christ in chapter 4. Jesus is not spoken of as the son of David, the root of Jesse, the lamb that was slain, the Lion of Judah. He's not mentioned at all in any of those place, by any of those monikers throughout the fir first chapter because this is a vision, a two-part two vision. Vision of God in His triune sovereignty and a picture of Jesus opening the scroll of redemption in close proximity to the sovereignty of God's will. Therefore, the redemptive plan of God is overseen by the sovereignty, the sovereign will of him who sits on the throne. Does that make sense? Okay. Come up here. In this vision, getting used to this new laptop. Come up here. In this voice, John is ushered into the presence of God and the heavenly court. All right. So come up here. Come up here. Now, did John get transported spiritually what happened to who was it that got I can't remember. yeah Enoch Philip there you go was this is this the same thing that happened to Philip where he was just walking along and all of a sudden he went wait a minute I'm in the wrong place <laughs> is this what happened to John no John is taken to a place that God chooses to reveal himself to John. 
the place where heaven realities are made plain to him. G.K. Beale states that because, of this, uh, because this is a timeless and spiritual dimension, it is difficult to make determinations concerning the earthly linear time of the events that he sees. So there is some truth to that. God is timeless. But there's a big debate right now, though, though God is eternal, or whether or not he's timeless. And you guys do not want me to get into that. It's kind of a hobby of mine is to understand timelessness in God. Um, which is an impossibility, but it's fun to kind of poke around with it. But right now there's a debate on whether or not time does not exist for God or whether God does, in fact, operate by a type of heavenly chronology. Um, that's, a, that's open for debate. Uh, G.B. Uh, G. B. Caird, however, suggests that this is uh, th- this to be heaven or a spiritual realm. This is the difference. G.K. Beale says that that John is transported into a place beyond creation, outside of creation. However, I think uh, G.B. Carrot actually says it the best when he says not so, that he's actually transported into a place called the place that uh, Genesis 1-1 depicts as in the beginning God created the heavens or the spiritual realm and the earth. And the reason that I say this is because John sees created beings. A depiction of created beings. So what John is actually taken up into is the heavens that are a created that were the that are the created space that were created in Genesis 1:1. That's my understanding of this. So it is distinctly possible that a form of time or at least a linear sequencing of events exists in this space. And I think that's important because I think the two, the two visions actually demonstrate a sequence of events. They, they demonstrate the truth of, of creation from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of redemptive history end are seen in chapters 1, uh, 5, and 6. We see the creator God in chapter 4 in the fullness of his effulgent glory, indescribable glory. And then in chapter 5 starts right here at the redemptive, at the start of redemptive history, which is at Christ's crucifixion. And then we see the Lord of redemption. But this, the God of creation, chapter 5, uh, chapter 4, extends from Genesis 1-1 to the end. Okay? So, yes, Greg, or uh, Rick. It's not hugely important, but why is it necessary that John had to go anywhere? Why could it just be possible that the Lord allowed him to see from his vantage point in a vision? Yeah. And, what, and what was in, real, in reality, that's the, what I hold. I, I hold that, that John really didn't go anywhere. But that the, the symbolic, and again, we're talking about symbolic language, come up here, is a symbolic statement. Yeah, you're now seeing things. So what he's actually saying is come up here is actually a shift in John's perspective from the physical natural into the truth of heavenly realities. So John, did John ever leave Patmos? No. Did John ever go into this? And this is a, a word, I hate this word that they use. John was taken into an ecstatic state. I hate that word. It's like John went into some kind of weird trance. I've received visions and pictures and words of knowledge, and I never lost cognizance of what was going on around me. I just knew. I just saw. I just understood. And I, it's very possible that that's what happened to John. And, yeah, just a second. And this is not something that necessarily takes a great deal of time. This could happen like that. All of a sudden, John just went, whoa, I got it. Yeah. Question. A statement. Yeah, both at the beginning of Revelations and the beginning of this chapter, the key there is he was in spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Because, and here's why. I'll get to it actually in a little bit, but. It is actually the Spirit of God that reveals the truth of God. And when the Spirit of God comes, He will what? Lead you into all truth. What is John seeing? All truth. So who has to take him into seeing all truth according to Scripture? The Spirit. Therefore, John was in the Spirit. It's nothing mystical. It's nothing ecstatic. It's nothing roll your eyes back in your head and lay on the floor and convulse. It's nothing bizarre. It's nothing like you're in a trance-like state. Like I said, it could have happened in a second. It could have happened over a period of five minutes. It could have taken the entire day where he was just in his mind's eye exploring. I had a vision of my own um, deliverance from drugs. and it saw, I saw it in pictures. And in my, my mind, it took 10 to 15 minutes. The guy who prayed over me said it took two minutes. So when you're in these spaces, there's, there's not really a, a concern about time. And time is different because you're seeing things. And for John, this, he could have think, oh my gosh, I just was in a trance and I saw things for five years. Well, it only took a couple minutes, John. You weren't gone five years. So what we try, it's very difficult for us to understand that the Spirit works outside of time, and it works in pictures, but it is He who takes us into all truth. Therefore, for John to see truth, he had to be in the Spirit. Does that make sense? We good with that? Okay. Um, let me close with this. i got to stop. All the visions from Revelation 6.1 to 22.5 actually flow out of the visions here recorded in chapters 4 and 5, as they are all visions that come from the sealed scroll of 5.1. All the visions after 5.1 come out of the opening of the scroll in chapter 5. The fact of this leads itself to an amillennial recapitulation hermeneutic in which all the visions have a mixture of past, present, and future elements. Okay? So... Uh, I'm going to stop there. We'll get into what must take place and some other stuff tomorrow uh, or next week. Okay, any questions? Any final statements? Let me just end with this again because I want to I prep you guys for moving into worship. Don't for a moment think that you're singing songs this morning just for the sake of it. Don't this morning take for granted the fact that you are actually entering into the very place that Josh read this morning. That you are stepping in to the very presence of the sovereign God who oversees all things, who is continually worshipped. And the 24 elders who depict the church as it is in its entirety, both Old and New Testament, you join with them in the declaration of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. And that statement alone should actually drive you to your knees. Do not take the Lord for granted this morning. Worship Him in the fullness of His glory and His sovereignty. Amen? All right. Thus endeth the lesson.